Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is powers and principalities. It sounds very dramatic and exciting and uh, the inspiration for many very bad contemporary Christian novels. We will not be going in that direction. In fact, the burden of a large portion of our discussion here today is going to be sorting out what the heck we are actually talking about when we talk about powers and principalities. Um, I think just because, well, it's alliterative. So, I mean, that sounds nice. Um, When we talk about principalities, it's got also this kind of old-fashioned quality, though we are not talking about Liechtenstein, which is a principality, but I don't think the kind that St. Paul had in mind. So we are going to tackle this rather as how to disentangle the concept of powers and principalities from easy, all too easy identification with worldly powers, even though worldly powers may well be caught up in the powers and principalities. So dad, this is, uh, I was going to say your darling, but I I don't suppose that's quite what I mean. But uh, (laughs) this is a... (laughs) My my pet theological topic. (laughs) There you go. That's a nicer way. Your pet. The powers and principalities are your pets. No, no. Okay. So why, why don't you get us started with the uh, the biblical sources for even having this, this turn of phrase, powers and principalities? Yeah, I think that's very important to do. Um, and the actual words, power and principalities, of course, are English translations of some texts that come from Paul, the Pauline literature. Let me just uh, refresh our, uh, our, our listeners' Uh, who I'm sure they're familiar with these texts, but let's just have them in mind. The first text I've chosen is Galatians 4.8. And Paul writes to the Galatians, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. And end of the quotation. That's verses 8 to 11. Now, what's, there's two things that are really interesting about this text. Uh, uh, he says that you want to, uh, uh, that, that formerly you were in bondage. You were a slave to deities which are by nature uh, not divine. That's an interesting thought. You were enslaved to deities who are by nature not divine. And then he says, having been discovered by the God of the gospel uh, and being known by him, how is it possible? And here he uses uh, this expression, that you want to return to the weak and beggarly stoicheia. That's the word Paul uses, the stoicheia, translated in the RSV as elemental spirits. And again, he talks about this being a matter of slavery. I remember when we took this up in our Galatians episodes earlier this year, that we spent a lot of time on these stoicheia and um, how difficult it was to even get a handle on them in the larger context of Galatians and with J. Lewis Martin's excellent commentary. So just uh, we can refer listeners back there, but uh, yeah, it's 
It's confusing. Well, let's let's just immediately uh, uh, put this up against Psalm 82, um, which uh, the British uh, Old Testament theologian Moberly has drawn to my attention. Uh, and Psalm um, 82 reads like this. And now keep this in mind as we talk about being in bondage to beings who are by nature not God, uh, these weak and beggarly stoicheia, uh, whatever that means, stoicheia. But with that thought in mind, listen to Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So evidently, that's the speech that God makes in the divine council, in the midst of the gods over whom he is holding judgment. And then the psalm continues, These um, gods have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like any prince. Close quote. So God pronounces sentence upon these divine beings, these gods who were present in the council, having indicted them for injustice uh, and a failure to do their job as stewards of the nation. That's how the psalm concludes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for to thee belong all the nations. So I submit, Sarah, that Psalm 82 is the precise background to Paul's introduction of this notion of the stoicheia. It was the idea, I think I mentioned this during the Galatians episodes, that Paul is thinking with Hebrew Bible, Old Testament scripture, that the, the nations of the earth have been assigned to various angelic powers who are providentially to rule over the development of these ethnicities, these various peoples and languages and kindreds and tongues. But the idea here is that these powers, these principalities, these stoicheia, have uh, miserably failed in their assigned duty to do justice for the poor and the weak and have rather uh, uh, sanctioned and empowered injustice. And so uh, God is finally pictured in Psalm 82 as rising up against these rebellious powers and principalities and condemning them to death like mortals. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's a little freaky, but why not? I mean, I, I can, I'm just trying to um, uh, imaginatively put myself there and, you know, uh, it would be as clear to an ancient person as to a modern one that there are different nations. They have different cultures and languages and structures and tendencies. And that, of course, was the source of, of uh, 
you know, polytheistic beliefs, this idea that each each group had its own god or set, sets of gods who looked out for them. But I could also see that, uh, you know, well-trained Israelites in the law of God would look and see this one thing that they all these nations have in common is how abysmally they treat the least and last of them. And, you know, uh, s- slavery of all kinds was pervasive throughout the ancient world. And, you know, the, the poor and fatherless and orphans and widows and all that kind of things were, were badly mistreated. So it seems like this would, uh, without making any ontological claims here, because I don't know what to do with that, um, it does seem like this would be a way of interpreting that apparent diversity of of cultural type and yet universality of of evil and injustice wherever you go. Yeah, actually, I think that does allow you to make a certain kind of ontological claim. What is it by nature to be God and what is it by nature not to be God? Psalm 82 testifies that the God who is truly God, who is truly the creator of all that is not God, is the God of covenant justice. And the false gods, the gods of the nations, the gods who are idols and untrue, are untrue precisely because they do not stand up for the poor and the weak and so forth. So that does move in the direction of making a certain kind of ontological claim. Well, I think it's like a a, a negative claim, which is that they're they're called, as we say in English, little g gods, but they're not really gods. But it doesn't it still doesn't clarify for me what they are. I see. Okay. Well, I think what Paul would like to say is that they're false gods. <laughs> But yeah, but what what is that? Is that an evil? Is that an evil spirit? Is is that an, an overreaching human? Is it you know pseudo Dionysius's many many uh, layers of being all the way up and all the way down? I don't know. We don't need to spend too much time on that. But no, but but I think you're right. I think when especially when it comes to the demonic, no less to the one true God, we should ver- be very cautious in making ontological claims. Uh, in the case of the one true God, because it's way beyond our pay grade. And in the case of the demonic powers, because uh, to become fascinated with the question of their reality is to, on a slippery slope, slide into their powers, I'm afraid. Yeah, you you become what you, you gaze upon in some sense, and you become what you listen to, right? I, I mentioned Moberly earlier, and this is what he says about Psalm 82. I just want to give a short quotation here. There simply were many gods in Israel's world, deities to whom people looked in prayer and hope, deities whose cult was observed in a way that gave identity and order to their worshipers, deities who were expected to give people victory over their enemies. What then follows from God being the determ- uh, from God being determined to figure in this assembly and recognizing that these others who are supposed to be deities are not really so. So the question of the the true God is really bound up with God's self-demonstration of his own deity, and this over against the usurpers, the, the false claimants to the title. I would just mention here very briefly One contemporary theologian who has really lifted up this idea is Wolfhard Pannenberg, who has argued that it is the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom of God, promises 
of the resurrection and eternal life and uh, the judgment and vindication of history as God's uh, reconciled creation, uh, that the question of the reality of God is an open question until that uh, demonstration by God of God's own promised reality is fulfilled. Now let me just, there's two other New Testament texts I'd like us to discuss before we go uh, into the other questions. Uh, Colossians 2.13. In in my opinion, Colossians is a Deutero-Pauline book written by a close disciple of Paul shortly after his uh, death in his name in order to update his message for new circumstances. And without going into all the reasons I hold that judgment, I just want to stipulate that. And here you can see the author of Colossians in chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, how he is trying to take up this idea from Galatians about the uh, uh, stoicheia. He uses slightly different language, which I'll point to in a second, but we, you can see we're in the same conceptual world. So he writes, And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, now here's the language, tas archas kai tas exousias, the principalities and powers, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in Christ. What do you make of that passage, Sarah? Well, you know, it, it's really striking the uh, the uh, nailing the legal demands against us to the cross is like kind of the most classic atonement motif, um, most beloved of a, of a certain... Um, Strain of American evangelicalism, particularly though you you see it in, in in Lutheranism to an extent too. But what strikes me now is looking at it is it's set directly and in opposition with the disarming of the powers and principalities and making a public example of them. So I I'm struck by the the you know the classic uh, he he shed his blood for me and canceled my debt is set you know it's it's conjoined to this public triumph over the powers and, and principalities. So there's there's no, it's not one or the other. It's both happening at the same time. And it's striking. I mean, the, clearly what's implied here is that the, uh, the cross is the place where the powers and principalities are humiliated and defeated, even though to every eye, it looks like it's the place where God in Christ is humiliated and defeated. So there's um, uh, all sorts of interesting inversions going on along with this linking of, of two motifs of redemption that are often um, selected one over the other. Yeah, that's exactly right. In contemporary Christianity, we often see a theology of liberation from uh, the tyrannical powers, the powers and principalities pitted against a theology of reconciliation between the holy God and sinful humanity. Whereas Colossians 2.13 binds these two motifs of redemption together precisely in the cross of Jesus. So let's try to think for a second how that makes sense, okay? Um, uh, 
you said he humiliated the powers and principalities. That's true. The text goes on to talk about a victory parade in which the powers and principalities are themselves enslaved and, and, and brought along in the train of the victory of Christ. Uh, so that's it's not a bad reading of the text. But the precise word that Paul uses in verse 15 is, I think, well translated into English as disarmed. God disarmed the principalities and powers and then made a public example of them triumphing over them in Christ. So how is it that he disarmed the principalities and powers, and what does that tell us about their power? Well, I think if you look back to verse 14, uh, because um, uh, God nailed the uh, bill of indictment, which stood against us with its legal demands, the law that accuses us of our sins, and, and that God took that law in its accusatory indicting power and nailed it to the cross. In other words, that in the death of Christ, the indictment against humanity was satisfied and done away with. Satisfied and therefore fulfilled, therefore canceled, therefore done away with. He canceled the bond which stood against us. That's the right kind of cancellation. So let me let me um, put it this way. So uh, to, to update to our language, maybe it's something like we are born into and find ourselves in this world that is ruled by powers and principalities. And without even knowing what we're getting ourselves into, we get sucked into doing their bidding and thinking their ways and following their paths. And um we can do this without wanting to. We can be aware that this is happening and still participate. The, the, we can simply be swamped like a tsunami. And it is too easy to say, you know, the devil made me do it. The powers and principalities made me do it. They overwhelmed me. All of us who live in the world know that e even if, if it's beyond our, our ability to fully resist, um, we are still guilty in some way. We still willingly participate. We take advantage of the system in order to put our own little uh, piece of ourselves ahead. And therefore, as long as we're caught up in that um, you know, there's always something like, uh, you know, in Soviet Russia, there's always something that can be brought against you to show you that you're guilty, that you're that you've colluded. And therefore, on what grounds do you ever have to go to God and say, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. But you willingly colluded. We have proof that you willingly colluded. So I think that would be a way of, of expressing why you have to have this double action of getting us out of the, the grip of the powers and principalities, but also doing it by addressing the concrete problem of our guilt and collusion in the in the ways of the powers and principalities. Yeah, and I think that's good. I would just stretch it a little bit further and say, when the law accuses us, even the law of the powers and principalities, there's always a grain of truth in it, isn't there? There's yeah, always, and that's my point. Yeah, that's right. There's always a truth there. Uh, and it's our guilt uh, is the leverage that the powers and the principalities continue to hold over us. Uh, who do you think you are to resist, uh, to reject uh, our power and authority? Who do you think you are uh, to uh, go another way 
uh, get back in your place. Uh, you are just as much a, a, a guilty sinner as the next person. You have no business uh, rejecting our uh, system of, of operation. And if you connect this with, with the figure of Satan in the Hebrew Bible, Hashatan, the prosecuting attorney in that divine council, that divine court that Psalm 82 was talking about in the beginning, the leverage uh, that Hashatan, Satan, has over sinners is that they may want liberation, they may cry for freedom, they may want out of the system, but every time they try to break three, free, the Satan can accuse them of real, not imaginary sins. And that is enough to knock the wind out of their sails and keep them, as Paul says, as slaves of the powers and principalities. Which also means that uh, Satan has to make sure that no real report of God goes abroad saying that, in fact, God is able to defeat the powers and principalities and very willing, in fact, eager to forgive the sins and cancel the debt of those caught up by them. So there has to be both the accusing of the sinner, but also spreading disinformation about God. I think so. And that I really like Luther's uh, take of, on this where uh, he, he talks about uh, being uh, demoralized and defeated by the oppressive knowledge of his own sins. And he recognizes that for the Christian uh, to, be, to be weighed down and defeated and paralyzed by the knowledge of their continuing sinfulness is in fact the victory of Satan. And so Luther, in his usual colorful way, uh, uh, pictures himself saying to Satan, go ahead and accuse me all you want. You have your truth, but your quarrel is not with me. Your quarrel is with my Lord Jesus Christ, who took away my sins and set me free. Go fight with him. I'm free <laughs> from your accusations. Nice. Yes, very Luther. All right, well, let's go on with the other New Testament texts you wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and this is probably the most famous, and in some ways the most important one, Ephesians six eleven through 14. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, as we just discussed. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate breastplate of righteousness. Yeah, that's a great text, isn't it? Well, what do you make of that? Well, <laughs> when I read this, all I can think of, there there were these two novels circulating when I was in my teens called um, uh, Piercing the Dark, th This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. And um, th that's a direct quote out of, out of here. Where is it? Uh, 
It doesn't matter. It's an, oh yeah, against the world rulers of this present darkness. And um, they were they were basically novels of upright Christians who prayed a lot and engaged in spiritual warfare against demons, which were luridly depicted and, you know, colorful and like alighting in houses. And I remember one of them that I read that um, one of the best ways of, of uh, exercising a little girl possessed by a demon was to spank her a lot. Um, it oh, it seems pretty twisted to <laughs> to me now but uh yeah so I, i'm a, a little um distracted by you know and I, I think this is actually one of the points we want to make is is um what the heck are we talking about with powers and principalities well whatever it is it's not something that's solved by spanking a little girl repeatedly um but yes why don't you take amen. over ephesians 6 <laughs> yeah, i can only just say amen to that we are, we are not contending against flesh and blood I mean, that is at least a strong negative ontological statement. The enemy is never a human being. The enemy is never a fellow uh, creature who, in principle, has been claimed by the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And we must look upon all fellow human beings uh, as beloved in Christ, whether they know it or not. Uh, at least if we want to be faithful to the the spirit of these Pauline texts, right? Yeah, and I think we, I don't think we can overstate that. In fact, I think it's maybe one of the most radical Christian claims, which is we are not fighting against flesh and blood. So in principle, all fights against flesh and blood as if they were the source and cause of evil and the powers and principalities has to be totally uh, an categorically rejected as not the way we prosecute our our battle against evil. And, you know, even when terrible things like wars become in some way necessary for the, the, proc- the, the even the people involved in them are proxies for the real thing. They are never the, the real thing that we're talking about here. Yeah, very good. Well said. And, and so away with all holy wars and, and crusades and jihads and anything along those lines. Uh, War, if it is to be justified in any way, is only to be justified as a concession to the the sinful world. And even there, under very strictly uh, delimited uh, conditions, as in the tradition of just war theory going back to Cicero and Augustine, yeah, but there's no illusion that by el- eliminating a certain category of of flesh and blood on the earth, like in genocides, that that thereby we solve the the problem of evil on the earth. That that simply is is utterly out of the question. Yeah, that remind we did our episode on Joshua some time back, and that was kind of the result of the the exposition of the book of Joshua that I undertook uh, in that uh, process. That the whole the policy of harem warfare uh, uh, came undone by the end of the book. And in fact, Israel f- comes under judgment as incapable of fulfilling uh, uh, this commandment. Okay, so but notice here uh, that uh, there's a negative ontological statement. We're not contending against flesh and blood which I think allows you, Sarah, to raise your question, then what in the world are we talking about when we refer to principalities against the powers? And then the Greek is the cosmokratoros, toskotos, toto, 
this uh, the cosmo craters that that's a very interesting term and later in patristic theology christ is identified as the cosmo uh, crator uh, but or the here, Ponto Crator, the Ponto Crator, the Ponto Crator, the, right? Yes, right. yes, the Ponto Crator, right? Um, and then the next expression, the spiritual, uh, the spirits of of evil uh, in the heavens. So you know there is some ontological claim here, but I still like to bracket it at this point and just point out that Paul wants, the writer of Ephesians wants uh, the Christians being informed about this, that they are struggling against the wiles of the devil, that they are to put on the whole armor of God so that they stand. Now, that's a very interesting expression, so that they stand. It indicates to me that in this political uh, context, the Christian ethos is resistance. That's what it means to stand under the onslaught of these forces, uh, to resist them, not to be seduced, not to be overwhelmed by them, not to be overcome by them. And in order to stand in resistance against their uh, still powerful uh, allures, one needs to arm oneself with the armor of God. Now, there's another very interesting, Sarah, Old Testament background text here I'd like to read. And this is from Ben Witherington III's uh, commentary on uh, the book of Isaiah, where he points to Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 21. And uh, I'm going to quote from this now. Witherington observes that the situation is addressed that is addressed is that of God's people suffering some injustice. And because there seemed to be no human remedy, God decided to intervene. God cannot abide forever human wickedness, so he decides to go to war against it. He will come to Zion and redeem those who repent when he has once revealed himself in all his glory. Even the faithful are enmeshed in the larger evil and must repent, and only God can shatter evil and scatter the foes effectively. And this is how he translates uh, uh, the verses. This is very interesting in the light of the Ephesian text we were just discussing. Quote, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies, and retribution to his foes, end quote. Well, Sarah, what do you make of that? <laughs> well, I, I never made the connection before, but of course, that's what inspires the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. Uh, what's what's wonderful is that in Isaiah, it's the Lord who clothes himself. And then in Ephesians, it's by the power of the Spirit, we clothe ourselves in the same armor that God himself wears when he goes forth to resist and do battle against the, the beggarly powers. Yes, in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament scripture, the Lord is the divine warrior who fights for his people. 
but endowing uh, his new covenant people with his own Holy Spirit, uh, they become these spiritual warriors. Now, I'm very nervous in saying this, Sarah. Can you guess why? Well, because they might start spanking six-year-old girls to get the demons out of them. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, right, right. Uh, you and I have both encountered certain kinds of uh, evangelical Christians who are really into spiritual warfare. And um, they are like silently praying and binding the spirits every time they deal with someone contradicting their faith. And, uh, and th that means basically demonizing, treating as demonically driven or possessed, a fellow human being who simply has objections to the Christian faith. Uh, I've witnessed this in my life. I suspect you have also in yours. Uh, not quite as directly, but I have seen enough and heard enough to be alarmed by it. And there was um, a while back, there was a, a professor at Fuller Seminary. I think his name was Peter Wagner, who was really into spiritual mapping. Like you would figure out which territory of Los Angeles was under the dominion of this demon. And then, you know, in Pasadena, it's that demon. And, you know, you could just map the whole earth to figure out which demon is reigning it. And then, you you know, you would like fight it directly. And uh, a lot of people got really into this. And I... It, um, it, even if it's not directly fighting flesh and blood, there is something so um, twisted and distorted about that and um, suckering people into becoming what they gaze upon that I can only, with horror, say that is not the way to deal with the powers and principalities. It's also not the way to deal with objections to the Christian faith. Uh, to, to immediately, I mean, we who are in the tradition of Luther have bitterly learned this lesson from the great man's own fail, failings in this regard. Um, yeah. uh, as, as he regularly and vituperously demonized Pope, peasants, and Jews. And we've, I hope. And Turks. Penitent, Don't forget the Turks. And Turks. And I hope we've penitently learned uh, from the man's failings in this regard that that's precisely what the Ephesian text is cautioning us against. And if it is cautioning us against fighting against flesh and blood, it really requires profound discernment, right, to, 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 to know exactly what you're battling with. And I think that's probably something we should turn to in the next half of this podcast. So, you know, I'm... It, it's easy to be horrified by the spanking the six-year-olds and the spiritual mapping and the silently binding the unbeliever kind of stuff. But um, it seems to me that there's also at the other the other extreme, let's call it the liberal extreme, there's another way of, um, it's not quite flesh and blood, but it's close. It's aligning the powers and principalities with um, something like empire. So like, I know that there are people who have, have read these texts in the New Testament as, as really covertly referring to the Roman Empire, and therefore we can legitimately transfer them to the forces of late global capitalism or communism or, you know, whatever system... Uh, racism, what, whatever is the um, the political and social affliction du jour can be simply um, identified with the powers and principalities. So you're not actually really going after people, but you are, you know, it seems to me it's still functioning within the, the earthly plane, not in the uh, 
the way it's intended here. So um, I, I think you had something to say about the in- interpreting these things as the Roman Empire in the first place, right? Yeah, I think we need to very carefully unpack this. Because in my opinion, you might not agree with me, uh, in my opinion, something like the spirit of toxic masculinity, uh, which is sometimes also called patriarchy, or something like the spirit of white supremacy, or something like uh, the spirit of hyper-nationalism. I'm saying spirit quite deliberately because I'm not talking about individual attitudes. I'm talking about uh, social mentalities, uh, ideologies that have a grip on the, not only on the imagination of human beings, but have a grip upon their hearts, uh, are mentalities that form desire uh, and um, practically um, uh, um, uh allure people into formations of social life that are malicious and then become uh, uh, structured in uh, forms of injustice. Uh, So how do we, and I think that would have a more plausible claim to interpret powers and principalities than some of the um, uh, uh, kind of... uh, uh, Un, unreflected supernaturalism uh, that um, wants to argue that there are real evil supernatural powers besides God in a kind of quite literal kind of sense. Uh, I have a hard time rec- re- reconciling uh, even that claim uh, uh, with, uh, with genuine monotheism. If there is a devil uh, and it's beyond human powers, it's nevertheless a creature of God, and it can only do what the sovereign creator God permits it to do, or something like that. Uh, And in any case, um, uh, these usurpers are the targets uh, of God's action, as we've discussed in Psalm 82 and so forth. So that's just by way of preface, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I think we should get back to the question of ideology. So I guess then the question is, with the New Testament interpretation, is the Roman Empire primarily an ideology or a whole lot of spears marching across the Mediterranean worlds? Or is it is it both the ideology and the weaponry together? And is that what is really being referred to? Yeah, uh, I think so. I think, uh, well, let's back up now. And there's there's a couple of very significant New Testament scholars, Walter Wink, N.T. Wright, and John Barclay, who have engaged this issue. And perhaps it would be helpful if we would just take a look at what they've said about this uh, before we try to answer that question, Sarah. Okay, go ahead. About the relationship between Romanitas, the ideology of the Roman Empire and uh, the Roman legions. Uh, Walter Wink wrote a couple of really influential books back in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, naming the powers and engaging the powers. Uh, And he argued that the Pauline expressions that we've discussed already today ambiguously denote both 
human institution, and spiritual powers, and are thus to be taken together as simultaneous aspects. Here I'm quoting a famous expression of his, one concretion of power, close quote. Now, this, this was his famous claim. So, whenever we're talking about powers and principalities, yes, there's a supernatural or spiritual dimension to it, but it's also always human and institutional, and that these two appear together as one concretion of power. So, that's his claim. Now, there's a problem with this. It does not follow that if two things appear confusedly or ambiguously as one thing, that this appearance is one thing. For example, it does not follow that if the state, for example, appears as Stalin's gulag, that the state, therefore, is gulag. That every state is gulag. Right, yeah, the state in principle is gulag. The basic contention of Wink is that Paul's language has wide scope so that under it one should critically consider and theologically evaluate all claims for an authoritative principle of origin and or for lordship with uh, uh, power liberating and vengeful. This, I think, this claim has withstood scholarly scrutiny. But the other proposal of Wink, that human institution and demonic spiritual power form one concretion of power, it seems to me has been subjected to withering criticism. Well, maybe by other biblical and scholars and systematic theologians, but it seems like a whole lot of the uh, angry, explosive power we have seen in the past two years has been has taken up exactly that thought that every form of power, hierarchy, and authority is definitionally spiritually evil. So the, the his thesis has legs, even if no longer in the the Christian thought world. Right, and you know, it's of course we've made this observation before in the polarization of American political life. Uh, on the far edges of either side, there really is a demonizing of the others. I mean, there really yeah. is. Uh, yeah. We don't need to dwell on that. But anyway, um, a, a more recent and, and more sophisticated um, attempt to defend Wink's thesis comes from N.T. Wright, who suggests that Paul's language of principalities and power is a code language for talking about empire, for talking about imperialism. Now, I can forgive any British theologian, a contemporary British theologian, for wanting to repent of the excesses of British imperialism. I can understand ah, that, sure. that within the United Kingdom, uh, this is a kind of a, a mandate uh, to come to terms with uh, the British Empire on which the sun never sets, as they used to say. But I think even though uh, uh, N.T. Wright makes this claim in his book, Paul and Caesar, or in his chapter article, Paul and Caesar, a new reading of Romans in his book, A Royal Priesthood, uh, uh, I think John Barclay has really uh, nailed uh, N.T. Wright uh, with the following statement, 
Paul's gospel is subversive of Roman imperial claims precisely by not opposing them within their own terms, since even turning Roman values on their head entails a kind of confinement within the ideological system in which those values are defined, end quote. What do you think of that? Well, I just, I find it really powerful and striking because, again, the the angry polarization that is sweeping up so many believers is assuming that we are continuing to fight on this plane and that the way to solve the problem is to accept the terms as they're given and and fight or restructure, but it's still within the same set of, of logic. And, and I don't mean this in the sense that, like, uh, we should just... Um, leave democracy in ruins or whatever. But I, I think what the what what strikes me about this is that the point is that the the real battle takes place pre politically in in um committing yourself to all flesh and blood and to the God creator of all of them in creating different ways of relating that they're that afterwards in some way come to bear on the the ideological and political space, but not through the direct, I, I don't feel like I'm saying this at all well, but not through the direct battle, because that would be accepting the terms of the battle. Maybe you can say that better than I did. No, yeah, well, very simply. So instead of the Roman Empire, we Christians are now warriors for God's empire. And we're directly engaged for who about uh, directly engaged in a battle, which is going to prevail. And we know historically what happened with that kind of thinking. We got Constantinianism. We got the idea that uh, now this age of the martyrs is over. Uh, the Christian religion has triumphed, and we're going to have a new and holy Roman Empire, uh, empire, God's empire, that's going to be politically uh, replacing the old pagan uh, and uh, uh, immoral and unjust Roman Empire, the unholy Roman Empire. That would be an example of opposing uh, Roman imperial claims on their own terms. And that's exactly not what Paul wants to do, uh, according to Barclay, with whom I, of course, agree. Right. I mean, and again, it's like I, I keep saying is you become what you stare at. And it's not surprising that, uh, you know, early Christians of the first several centuries had to keep their eyes on the Roman Empire at all times because the Roman Empire was coming for them. The problem was when they they finally defeated the empire through their gospel message as you know, uh, compromised as that was, is having gazed upon it for so long, they recreated it. And, um, and, and there was, I, again, within, within those terms of logic, there was no way not to see that as a providential opportunity to do empire right this time. Right. But yeah, we all know uh, it's too obvious to belabor that point. You know, and it's also, now I want to make a, 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 an ancillary point, which is not directly theological, but I think it flows from this discussion and Barclay's critique of right, namely this. The vilification of empire that we hear in the literature uh, all the time these days, I think is just politically stupid. The alternative to empire is nationalism. Yeah, nations are empires. They're just smaller and aspire to ethnic purity. That is not an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And empire uh, can rep can represent multicultural cosmopolitanism. 
in a, a system that forces diverse peoples to live together in a tolerable peace. Empire forces peoples to do so as a monopoly on the means of coercion, and that, to be sure, is its fatal flaw as just another form of human political sovereignty. And that's why, theologically, how empire's best aspiration for cosmopolitan tolerance is not simplistically to be demonized, uh, and it's to be recognized as but a temporary order, one that is eminently reformable. Uh, especially when we are aware that the political alternative, as we saw it in the 20th century, is the bottomless pit of ethnic group self-determination against other ethnicities, fascism. Right, right. Well, I would love at some point to come back to talk about about empire because I have become a also a qualified fan after um, the work I did on trying to understand the Austro-Hungarian Empire and exactly its multilingual cosmopolitanism until it became obsessed with ethnic purity and went down the dark right. rabbit hole there. But I also just want to say I, I more often um, criticize left wing politics here because that's what I just am, am nearer, I suppose, in some respects or um, the. The people around me are, but um, I, I, without naming any names, I recently realized that somebody on, I would say, who I thought was a. Um admirable person on the right, the Christian right, um, who was trying to speak up for this, what I thought was this uh, pre-political commitment to God and the um, fighting the powers and principalities the right way through bonded friendship and Christian community and discipline and so forth, discovered is actually an admirer of right-wing liberal re regimes if they at least defend good Christian conservative values. And I was oh, so shocked and horrified by this because you can you can do the good talk about Christian spirituality and and fighting the the powers and principalities and not flesh and blood and still get suckered in to a defense of um to, to thinking illiberalism and I mean that in the, in the the sense of uh, the, the one party system and jailing journalists and controlling with propaganda how people are allowed to think and um, all the evils that come with it and suppose as long as it defends the right, Christian values, then it's okay. It's not. That's exactly how the powers and principalities also corrupt from the inside out the Christian commitments. So with great regret. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you might be thinking concretely of uh, Hungary and Europe today and under the regime of Ordosh. The name is an Ordosh. Ordosh is the, the Lutheran good guy. It's, it's Ordon or something like that. Orlan okay, or we'll anyway. Yeah. Right. Yes, I, I I may just be thinking of Hungary. It is possible, and people who admire <laughs> Hungary, it's possible. Okay, uh, let's transition now to to what what Christian people are um, our listeners uh, might make out of all this practically. What can we do about this? How do we fight against these powers, not flesh and blood? And I, I would just like to read a few lines from John Barclay, which I think point us in the right direction. He says against N.T. Wright that Paul reads political history according to a different script, such that his stance towards the Roman Empire is neither simple opposition or obedience. Instead, it is a field of human reality crisscrossed and contested like all other others by the opposing forces of flesh and spirit, 
and is subject to powers far greater than itself in the battle created by the gospel. I think that gets it exactly right. Whatever the ontological reality of the powers and principalities, and we don't have to make a determination about that here. After all, it's rather mysterious. It is a battle that has been exposed by the intervention, the incision of the gospel, uh, with its claim that because you are forgiven in Christ, you are no longer subject in your conscience and in your bodily behavior to the powers and the principalities. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of bondage. You've been liberated from their tyrannical grip upon you. Only do not use your liberty as license for the flesh, but bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, right? Yes, but that's really hard. <laughs> Absolutely. And- yeah, and I think um, the the second we think we've we've uh, managed to do that, <laughs> we're probably deeply deluded. So I think we need to come back to that. But okay, I think you wanted to say something more yet before we go. Well, on. I think I think that what Barclay would say, certainly what I would say on the basis of this statement, is that the minute you try to conceive doing this individualistically, you give up in despair. It can't be done individualistically. The Christian life is not a life for isolated heroes. Uh, In any case, Barclay says, Paul radically reframes reality. He demythologizes political sovereignties and reduces them, here's a great quote, to bit players in a drama scripted by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And this does not mean that Paul's gospel is apolitical, only that the political is for him enmeshed in an all-encompassing power struggle which covers every domain of life, that is, neither separating the personal from the public nor reducing politics to the contest for the reins of power. That's the real argument against preaching politics from the pulpit, because it's almost impossible to do it without finally accepting the terms of the debate and fighting within that plane. It's not because we aren't concerned with the polis as Christians. We are intensely. Yeah. And I, I, you know, just an aside here very quickly, the word power, dynamis in Paul's Greek language, we use the word politics in a very a bundle of confusing uh, different ways with different meanings. We can mean uh, by politics first uh, the uh, organization of power, uh, social power, human social power. Secondly, we can mean by this uh, policy uh, 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 debates about how organized power should be deployed. And third, we can mean by politics partisan ideologies. You know, I'm a Democrat because I believe that uh, the government of the people is what America is about. I'm a Republican because I believe the Constitution establishes a uh, Republican form of government with a mixture of um, uh, oligarchy and democracy and monarchy in the three branches of government. And that, that's partisan politics, the differences between Republicans and Democrats. And basically what we see happening in the churches is the conservative churches preaching partisan Republican politics and the liberal churches 
preaching partisan democratic politics. And I quite agree with you. This is just uh, 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 debating the issues uh, in the name of the gospel on the very false terms that are already given to us, rather than accomplishing the reframing of the issues of power that the gospel purposes. Anyway, so final quote from John Barclay. Paul's theology concerns the subversive and redemptive power of divine grace in Christ, which creates and empowers new communities of social and therefore broadly political significance, end quote. I think that's spot on. I think that, Sarah, that's right on target. What the reframing of the issues by the gospel does is make it abundantly clear that you have heard how it is among the Gentiles, how their people, how they lord over one another. It shall not be so among you, but among you, whoever would be the greatest, let him be the servant of all. It's a new kind of community, as you said earlier, that's actually functioning on the pre-political level. And it's there that it's capturing hearts and forming minds and therefore uh, generating a new humanity, a new social humanity, which uh, is uh, capable of battling not against flesh and blood, but against these usurping powers that uh, uh, tyrannize us by accusing us of our collusion and sin. I would just say that the phrase new humanity always reminds me of Soviets who eliminated those who did not fit into their new humanity. So I think it's important to say that any new creation in Christ remains in every way organically and morally connected to the rest of flesh and blood. Otherwise, I think you get back into a new way of of partitioning up the human race into those who get it because they've become part of the new humanity and those that don't. And it's as ugly when Christians do it as when Soviets do it. Uh-huh. I agree. Yes, very, very well said. Yeah, we're, we're, we're running out of time here. But so I'd just like to say, it seems like from everything we've been talking about here, there are, are two um, tools that are given to Christian believers in responding to the powers and principalities. And the first one is an analytical one in which it becomes possible to see and identify, maybe not with absolute clarity, but with greater clarity, what in fact is going on, you know, behind the scenes, the, the stoicheia, the the ideologies, the spirits that are captivating. And so I w- would think that the first step is some kind of, of understanding. But then the second would be then the resistance. I, I think you have to understand what you want to resist before you can successfully resist it or you get ca- caught up in it. Yeah, I think um, one of the insights, Sarah, that speaks to that is Robert Jensen's interpretation of, of spirit. Uh, and for him, spirit, and this is kind of his uh, roots in Hegel's philosophy, but for him, spirit is the animating... Um, Uh, sensibility of a particular form of human community. So we can talk about the spirit of St. Louis. We can talk about the spirit of the New York football giants. We can talk about uh, the spirit of of sisterhood. And you go on and on. Whatever kind of social formation you have, there's a certain spirit. And we refer to that to talk about what binds these diverse individuals into a movement or a, 
a living whole, an organic whole. Uh, and it's, it's more than just a men mentality, though it includes a mentality and an ideology, but it's also a, a form of love. The, the, the spirit is the love that binds people together in a cause or a movement or something like that. So the spiritual forces of wickedness would be those formations of power that are malicious, that are against the God of love, and therefore against whom the God of love goes to battle. Uh, they are the spirits of malice, and the spirits of malice, therefore, are always the ones reducing the other to servitude, to slavery, to um, humiliation, to contempt, and so forth and so on. So the structures of injustice flow naturally out of the spirit of malice. And if they, you want to take an even deeper dive, where does the spirit of malice come from? And here I love St. Augustine's explanation of the origins of the devil. Uh, the devil, um, of course, was Lucifer, the first angel, the angel of light, Augustine is thinking, and but a creature, not the creator. And so it came as a surprise to Lucifer when he discovered that the plan of God was to make the lowly earthlings, these creatures bound to flesh and blood, uh, these physical beings to be his covenant partner and the object of his eternal and redeeming love. And Lucifer was incensed that he had been overlooked in favor of a being of lesser ontological status. And in a fit of envy, he determined to spend his entire angelic power on destroying the human race because it had been chosen to be God's covenant partner. And so we've gone through injustice, uh, systems which humiliate the other in some way or another, to malice, the antithesis of love, the, the ill will that wants to build oneself up by putting others down. And at the root of malice then is this primal sin of envy, of wanting to be God and not wanting God to be God. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. It, um, envy is such an, an ugly and unattractive emotion that um, it's very easy to overlook it in ourselves and not want to see it in people or structures that we admire. Uh, but... <laughs> I think you and Augustine are right. It is it is um, pervasive, perhaps one of the most um, powerful forces in human sociality. And you know, and of course, it's it's the flip side of our ability to um, admire and aspire, because uh, anyone you admire and aspire to be like and fail to be like in some way is a judgment over against you. So, I guess so. I, you know, I've heard you talk low these many years about the structures of malice and injustice, and there's a lot to that. Maybe this is a generational difference between us, um, maybe because you uh, grew up with an hailing memory of World War II, uh, the, the great fight against malice and injustice, and then, you know, 
grew up through the 60s and the civil rights and everything. But I, I have to say what troubles me more, maybe just because I take the malice and injustice for granted, is what I have become to think of as the forces of blindness and ignorance. There is a, a human structural problem of our actual finite inability to know everything we need to know to function well in the world and the the radical increase in complexity that our the modern era but especially the past 100 years 20 years have given us puts us in a position where we can literally never know enough to act well and yet we have to know so many things to even even stay legal that's ignorance. But then there's also blindness. And uh, maybe this is, um, again, part of a uh, being a, <laughs> in the church for so long. But there can be a, a good person's unwillingness to see what needs to be seen because it's ugly, because you, you don't want to look at the thing that you could become. And yet to never look and acknowledge the, the ugly stuff is also to be a, a sitting duck for it. Um, and I, the way I would connect this back biblically is that there is a profound sense of the unintentional. So like already in Leviticus, there are atonements made for unintentional sins. It's like recognized in the, in this very early substrate of Israel's law that you can run afoul of the, the law without doing it maliciously or unjustly or on purpose, and you can still get tangled up in it and it can have devastating consequences. And, you know, it's uh, in Luke's gospel, you know, the Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which is probably a later edition. But it actually reflects, I think it's Stephen's sermon in Acts um, or somebody in Acts basically says, or Peter too, says they didn't really know what they were doing. And yet not knowing what they were doing, they crucified the Lord of life. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not a light thing. The, the ignorance plea doesn't help all that much in that case. Um, and, and Pilate too, you know, Pilate's washing his hands. You know, he, he actually is the final guy who says whether or not Jesus is going to die. And he is like, well, I don't know. Your kingdom is not of this world. What's that supposed to mean? These people are hysterical. I'll just let them, <laughs> you know. And so I'm, and a, a, a final ridiculous example, but I think this really illustrates what, what troubles me so much is the Facebook like button was introduced some years ago with the express intention of bringing more light and joy and happiness to the world. It made it easy for you just to approve of a friend's post and say, yeah, I like that. And it has metastasized and caused mental illness and suicide and depression. And all the stuff has come out recently about how absolutely dreadful social media is for people, especially young people. And of course, they they never intended that. There are lots of malicious things that, and unjust things that they really did intend, like collecting our data without our permission. But that particular thing, destroying the psyches of young people, certainly no one in social media world wanted that to happen. And yet it happened. So... I guess my this is a real downer way to end the episode, but I'm I'm not quite I, I can see the way towards fighting malice and injustice and envy. Like I see that what is actionable there. What I don't know is how you genuinely cope with your your ignorance, your your blindness, my blindness, um, my finitude, all the unintended consequences of the good that I intended that come back and have devastating consequences across the earth. Yeah, wow. Powerfully said, Sarah. Let me just suggest a couple of things in response to that. 
I think we can distinguish, of course, as you as your distinction between ignorance and blindness tacitly does, between um, the fact of our creaturely finitude, which simply means we all occupy a definite perspective, a physical in space and time perspective and a social perspective formed by our particular location in human history. Uh, and with a particular perspective comes inevitably blind spots. I can't look comprehensively in all directions simultaneously. I, I have to stay focused and staying focused. Uh, I see one thing and ignore a whole lot of other things. So there's, as you're saying, there, there's a kind of a structural ignorance that just goes along with our finitude. But it seems to me, Sarah, unless you want to be willfully blind, willfully turning, averting your eyes from seeing the ugly stuff you were talking about earlier, the recognition of our creaturely finitude would, uh, would lead us to a posture of humility in all of our cognitive behavior. We would say, I don't know it all. I don't see it all. Therefore, when other people and I speak uh, across one another and don't communicate with humility, I have to say, I don't see the world from your perspective. Let, help me try to walk in your shoes for a mile so I can see what you are seeing. And likewise, let me invite you to walk in my shoes for a mile so you can see how I am seeing things. And with that kind of humility, one can actually create bridges. Now, this is a finite work. It's not ever going to be universally solved. But one thing congregational life can do is facilitate this kind of hum humble sharing of experiences and perspectives. And that in itself is a, is a powerful act in building community. The other thing about intentional blindness, this is malicious. Intentional blindness says, I know it. I know what I want to know. I don't want to be disturbed. I don't want to be bothered. Uh, uh, I, I don't buy your stuff, your, your contradiction to me. You are, uh, then you reach into the, the demonizing mood. You know, you are the voice of the devil. You are the voice of apostasy. You are the voice of fundamentalism. You are the voice of liberalism in theology. You know, and you just go into that dive into um, malice uh, with intentional blindness. And, of course, the solution to that, and, of course, in Christian history, is the great appreciation for knowledge. Knowledge is important. Knowledge widens our horizons. Knowledge uh, uh, teaches us about the mistakes human beings have made in their pride and arrogance. So that's two, two reflections on what you said about blindness and, and, uh, and ignorance. Mm. Well, I hope you're right. Well... I hope I am too. So how do we fight against this present darkness? Yeah, well, I think we, the, if we're going to follow 
Paul's and Pauline literature's counsel on this, the fundamental thing is building up congregations by the gospel. And that means uh, these practices of humility and conversation and uh, neighbor love, bearing one another's burdens, seeing the world as others see it, uh, building up congregational life. And this is operating, as you said, we said earlier, on this pre-political level. So we don't let our talk about God and Christ and the community become code language for Republican or Democratic politics, partisan politics. And we have to actively teach Ephesians 6, refusing to identify the powers and principalities with fellow human creatures, no matter how much they annoy us. Uh, last May, <laughs> I, gave, I gave a talk on Martin Luther King, and I talked about his uh, radical ethic of, of love, love for enemies. And I you know, rooted that in his theology uh, and so forth. And one of the students put a sharp question to me. Uh, and how are you supposed to love the Proud Boys? The Proud Boys are one of those right-wing uh, militias or something. Uh, and I said quite spontaneously, well, it's kind of a miracle, isn't it? It's kind of a miracle that you can love someone who really hates you and is really out to hurt you. And it is kind of a miracle, and that's exactly why it is a possibility of the gospel. And that means the practice of enemy love rooted in the true, the gospel truth that while we were weak and still enemies at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, I mean, I know a lot of congregations who have been infected and split over those things, over all these things, but I, I like the idea that the intentional congregational practice is to clear out space for the miracle to happen and to invite the miracle in and to recognize that, that when this boundary crossing love takes place, it really is a miracle and to, to see it as that. I think that's a better place to end than my creed accord of despair there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Okay, Sarah. All right. Well, next time on the show, our topic will be the law, which is almost, though not quite, as good as the gospel. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.